Hello, and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. My name is Kristen McCarthy, and I'm the Director of Grants and Operations at FMEP. And I'm also the author of our Foundation's Weekly Settlement and Annexation Report. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Amy Cohen, who serves as the Director of International Relations and Advocacy at Iramim, and Rafa Sablavin, who is a human rights lawyer from Jerusalem. Rafa isn't joining me in his capacity as a lawyer today. He's actually joining me as a representative of his family, the Sublevin family, which is one of 150 Palestinian families living under the threat of dispossession in East Jerusalem. The Sublevin situation is urgent, as they're facing a court-ordered eviction date of March 15th. And as Iramim has said in a recently issued brief just yesterday, I think, the only thing that can be done to keep this family in their homes as of now, past March 15th, is concerted international pressure on the Israeli government to intervene. And that's kind of why we're here today, to bring some more awareness to this case. So thank you so much for joining me, both of you. I know there's a lot going on, and we appreciate your time. Um, Rafat, I want to start with you. And I just want to start with, tell us about your family. Um, Tell us about your family's house. What's your history? What's the history behind this? Um, And, you know, if, if, if our visitors could visit your family in their house, like, what would they see? What would they hear? So, thank you, Kristen. I'm, I'm happy to be speaking today. And um, I would like to tell you like a bit of, uh, of some, some of the history of the house. But first, I'll tell you more about uh, my family. So my mom and dad were both born in, in East Jerusalem in the 1950s. So during the time when East Jerusalem was, uh, was administered by the government of Jordan, um, and uh, in 1967, when the city was occupied, my father, who was 16 at the time, witnessed the demolition of the Mughrabi Quarter, which is basically a, a historical neighborhood part of the old city, which Israel demolished right after occupying the city in 1967. Uh, my mom was born in 1956, and she was actually born in the house in question from, from where my parents are being uh, forcibly evicted currently. Um, so she was born in 1956. She also witnessed the 1967 war, during which uh, she had to flee to Jordan and she stayed with family for a few years before coming back. Um, the house itself, as I said, it's my mother's. It's my mother's family. It was rented in, uh, in the 1950s from the Jordanian government, uh, from the custodian of, uh, of enemy property. Um, and my mother's mom, my grandma, passed away in the house. So for, for us as a family, the person who has the most uh, memories, the most uh, connection to the house itself is my mother. Um, and if you would go to the house, the house is located in the heart of the old city, the old city of uh, Jerusalem. Um, it's one minute away from Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Temple Mount. Um, and basically, like from, from the windows of the house, you actually see the Dome of the Rock, the Golden Dome. So you see it from the windows of the house. It's in a very strategic also location in, in the old city. However, if you do go to the house today, you will also see a house that's, um, that's actually falling apart, both literally and um, also sentimentally, let's say. Like the house is, is not in a good shape structurally, like it is falling apart, the paint is coming off. And we want to hold maintenance works in the house. We've been trying to do it for, for years now, but we are not permitted to do the maintenance works. 
In addition to that, if you go today, you will find my mom, my elderly mom and my dad alone in the house. They live alone in the house because the Israeli high court ordered this in the 2016. So almost seven years ago, it ruled that myself, my siblings, my, uh, my nephews and nieces can no longer live with my mom and dad in the same house. They forced us out of the house in 2016. And because of this, if you go today, you will only find my mom and dad living there. They're not allowed to live with the children, with the kids. They're not allowed to have someone caring for them, especially especially with their old age, their health conditions. So uh, this is unfortunately the kind of reality that you would find in the house. In addition to that, um, like as, as, the, as you have mentioned in the beginning, we're expecting um, forced eviction of my parents from the house anytime after the 15th of March. We're not sure if it's going to happen exactly on the 15th, if it will be it, it will be like a few weeks away. We're not yet sure, but it is enforceable as of the 15th of March. On the same time, as I said, the house has lots of memories for my family, for my mom specifically. Um, and... Um, it just it's 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 difficult for us as Palestinians to to daily watch our homes being demolished, our ho- our houses being being taken over and seized by Israeli settlers, by settler organizations, and you live in a reality where you see your city changing around you. It's no longer the same. Everything is changing. The neighborhood is changing. The street signs are changing. Slowly, Arabic is being removed the Palestinian identity of, of Jerusalem is also slowly being being removed by Israel, by its policies. Um, and it's really sad for us to be living in this reality. It is difficult, yes. But um, but also, like, my, my parents have been involved with this legal case for over 40, 40-something 40 years. So despite the difficulty and the sadness of what's happening, we're still determined to keep fighting. Um, we're still determined to let the world know what's happening. And um, this is also why I'm here today, to tell the world, what, to, the world what's happening and to say that we do need to stop this. We do need to stop the injustice happening here. Yeah, so can you just tell us about that 40-year legal battle? How did it start? And how did it progress and where how did we get to where we are now <laughs> sure um for 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 me to put things in context i will have to start with the occupation of east jerusalem in 1967 um so when when east jerusalem was occupied there were lots of changes changes done by the israeli government in east jerusalem including changes to the laws applying israeli law to the city and also applying discriminatory laws which discriminate against Palestinians and slowly works towards their forcible transfer from Jerusalem, from the West Bank, from the, the, the from, Palestine, from Palestine as a whole. This started with with a series of flows whereby all properties that were administered by Jordan pre-1967 became administered by the Israeli government, including my family's house. The actual attempts to evict my family started in the 1970s. It, uh, it started actually with a, a notification my family received from the Israeli Jerusalem municipality, informing them that the house is, is structurally intact, it's not safe to live in, and it needs maintenance 
for you to be able to, to continue living there. So my family started those works in the 1970s and shortly after the Israeli Antiquities uh, Authority it, it handed my family a stop work order saying the works they are doing are, uh, are basically not permitted, are illegal to do. And th that's why my family had to stop working in the house. Um, and during the 70s, 80s, all the other Palestinian families who used to live in the building were evicted by Israeli authorities, by order of Israeli courts. Uh, and early in the 1980s, the apartment next door was, was seized by Israeli settlers. And when that, ha that happened, they actually physically blocked my family's access to the building. Like my family didn't have access to the house for almost 20 years until, the, until 1999. So during that time, the legal battle already started. It was uh, with the general custodian of uh, public property. It's a, a part of the Israeli government. Um, and there were consistent attempts and lawsuits by the, initially by the Israeli government to try and evict my family from the house, take over the house. And my parents told me that in the, in the 90s, during one of the court hearings, a, an Israeli judge actually gave them a blank check and he was like, write whatever sum you want and just leave the house. So my family didn't accept. They continued with the lawsuit. And in 1999, an Israeli judge decided he wants to come and see for his eyes what's the situation like in the house. So he arrived to the, to the building and he saw how there was no physical door, physical access for my family to the building. And he saw the condition in which it was. So we were allowed to reopen an entrance early in the 2000, in 2000 exactly. Um, and we, we were able to do some maintenance work, but it, 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 it didn't serve the purpose. There was, there was a need for more structural work to be done in the apartment. So the, the, this, this was basically the first case for which the Israeli government was behind. In 2010, the Israeli government released the, the property from public to private. And the, the ownership was given to an Israeli settler organization that registered the property as Hikdesh. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but um, it's, it's basically like uh, dedicating property for the service of a certain faith. Um, and and that, that was like the allegation by, by the settler organization which took, which took over the property. Um, and in 2010, as I said, they started a new legal battle to evict my families. And their, their main line of argument is that uh, this building, this structure is supposed to be for the service of uh, Jewish people from the Galicia region. Um, and therefore, Jews should live in this property, not Palestinians. This was their key argument. Um, legally, they were trying to follow my family so one of the key legal arguments that they tried to use was that my, my father's family has another property in the West Bank, which the court used as an excuse to also revoke my mother's tenancy. And it's not my father who is the tenant, it's my mother. So this was one of the key things the settlers pushed for and the court accepted as an argument. And, um, and eventually this was the reason for the eviction, the, 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 the first eviction order was um, I think in 2011, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and during that time, we also went through a legal process where we went, we appealed to the district court, like the appeal court, then appealed to the high court. And eventually in 2016, the high court uh, 
partially accepted my family's appeal. And as I said in the beginning, the High Court also decided that my parents can, can, can live in the house for additional 10 years, but without us. They didn't allow us to continue living with my parents in the house. Um, so as I said, the court ruled that my parents can stay, stay living there for additional 10 years, which should end in 2026. But the court also allowed the settlers to file another eviction case against my parents, which is the current case from, from where the eviction order materialized. So in, in, in short, it, it's been repeated lawsuits and repeated attempts also repeated attempts by by Israeli governmental bodies, by the Israeli settlers, Israeli settler organizations to displace my family and take over the property. Thank you, Rafat. I can't imagine what it was like to grow up as <laughs> you and your siblings under that stress and strain. And I mean, I, I also, I, I guess I have to ask, like, why are your, why, Speaking for your family, but also Palestinians across Jerusalem, where does the determination to stay come from? <laughs> I mean, against 40 years of relentless, unending, new tactics, new efforts, like, why do they want to stay? Um, they always say that Palestinians are steadfast, that we consist, and it is it is true somehow. Some, sometimes I, I wonder where we get this determination from and like from living this daily reality and not just like when it comes to issues of evictions it's the whole thing the whole system the occupation the, right. the injustice the oppression the checkpoints this whole system you live under really tests your your faith it really tests your humanity every single day it is difficult it is not easy to uh, to remain steadfast with all of that but I, I, I think like for us Palestinians, like what, what other options do we have? Like uh, Israeli Jews always say, like say in Hebrew, we don't have another land. We don't have another land either. <laughs> We're here to stay. We're not going anywhere. And I actually think like this, this brings us to, to a very central, central part of this conflict. And it is both both people realizing that neither is going anywhere and we just have to somehow learn how to coexist with each other or we're just going to keep fighting for it for the next seven, ten decades or who knows. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Um, I want to turn to Amy now. Um, Amy, you work for Irmim and Irmim works with a lot of Palestinian families across East Jerusalem to stop to try to stop state-backed settler takeovers of homes, amongst other issues. Um, but Irmim has a very special relationship to the Sublaban case because one of the members of the Sublaban family works at Irmim. Um, so I guess I just want to ask you to tell us about Irmim's role in this case and what you see and have had to fight and adding any more detail to what Rafat already, already told us. Um, yeah. So please. Yeah. yeah, Kristen, thank you so much for, for having both of us um, this morning, your time, this evening, our time. Um, it's it's hard to follow after Lahafat's um, really, really poignant and powerful um, just narrative and, and story of his life and his family's life. 
and um, the struggle and the resilience. I mean, that was one thing that I continually kind of heard over and over was just the resilience of, of your family. Um, but also it's so indicative of the resilience and steadfastness and determination of the Palestinian people as a whole in Jerusalem, but also throughout the occupied territories. And so I just really want to honor that. Um, but uh, I think, you know, before I go into how it, how Iramim has been involved, especially with the Sublevin family case, is to is to kind of capture it. One of the, one of the things that we have begun to use is the fact that this what is happening within particularly East Jerusalem, but throughout the occupied territories, it we're describing it as essentially a battle or this wholesale assault on the Palestinian private and collective home. So essentially, what it is is that this the Palestinian home has really become this front line in the political battle over Jerusalem. And even as a, as the conflict as a whole, and you see that being played out in evictions, in demolitions, in the confiscation of Palestinian property and land, is that it all culminates and it all concentrates around the Palestinian home, their existence, their very entity within the city, uh, their identity, the character of a space. And so it's not just the actual private and individual home that's under threat, but it's also the collective home, as uh, Fat was referring to, is that the entire city, the Palestinian character, Arabic, the political character, the identity, everything is under assault and, and under attack from Israeli policies and practices. And so what we're seeing today is it now really concentrating around uh, forced evictions and, and demolitions. And so I think for us, for the Sublevin family case is that it's become far more, it's far more challenging and devastating. Obviously all of the cases are devastating in and of itself, but with the Sublevin family cases, it's, it's such a personal level because it directly impacts the family at Iramim. We are, we're obviously, we're around 15 to 16 staff members, but it, more than us being staff members, we're, we're a family and, and his brother, Ahmad Sublevin is a veteran staff member at Iramim, and so it hits so much closer to home when you're when a very own staff member of, of, of this family is under imminent threat of, of losing of losing their home. And so it just it underscores the, the severity of, of this issue. And so Iramim has obviously, as you mentioned, Christian, you know, Christian, Kristen, sorry about that. As you've mentioned, Kristen, you know, we we've worked on and continue to work on a variety of cases throughout East Jerusalem and even sometimes simultaneously. But for the Sublevin family case is that what we have really done is is focused on concerted advocacy efforts alongside the family and other organizations to garner local and international attention to elicit public pressure and then ultimately intervention on the family's behalf. And this has kind of spanned, I would say, even a decade or so. It was even before I joined Iramim. This was one of the cases that we had really taken on and advocated vis-a-vis -vis the international community, also government agencies and, you know, locally in order to halt this eviction. And you know, the reason why the focus is so much on public pressure and advocacy and lobbying 
the government and so forth is because you're dealing with this inherent discrimination that's implicit within Israeli law. Okay. It's, and so, and it's based on ethno-national identity. And so that's combined with, you know, these ideological and political impetus behind these measures. And so if you think about it, and this was, you know, what Rafat mentioned is that, you know, a just and legal recourse for the Sublubin family, or even the majority of East Jerusalem Palestinian families that are facing forced eviction, it's extremely limited. The legal remedies, because of the fact that there is this implicit discrimination and injustice within Israeli law, is that the legal recourse is extremely limited, if not almost impossible in some of these cases. And so what we have said, and you mentioned this even in the beginning, is that really save for public pressure and international intervention, there's not much, if anything, that can be done to prevent the Sublevin family's displacement, but also with other families that are facing eviction, even this month, or are facing decisive hearings within the Israeli court system, is that, again, the legal recourse is very limited. And so you know, the question is, what do I mean in terms of this discrimination in Israeli law? And Rafat, he, he kind of he mentioned uh, in general, but I want to give a little bit more detail as to what this is. And some of our listeners or viewers may have heard of it before. It is called the 1970 Legal and Administrative Matters Law. And it sounds very, very bureaucratic. But essentially what it does is that it exclusively affords Jews with the right to reclaim property that allegedly belonged to Jews in East Jerusalem prior to 1948, okay? So essentially land restitution rights. However, on the flip side of that is that Palestinians are completely deprived of any rights of land restitution. So they have no parallel legal mechanism to retrieve all of the properties, the lands and the homes that they were forced to abandon or that they were expelled from on the Israeli side of the green line. So you have this really implicit discrimination within the law, but in addition to that is that there's another layer because not only does no legal mechanism exist for them to retrieve their properties back, but the, this 1950 absentee property law, it essentially enshrines in law that Palestinians who are forced to abandon their homes on the Israeli side of the green line. So you're talking about beautiful mansions and villas and homes in, say, West Jerusalem, in Talbiye, in Baca, and so forth, that once belonged to Palestinians, now are inhabited by Israeli Jews, but they have no means of retrieving them. And in addition to that, there's actually a law that completely forbids them from actually retrieving and reclaiming this property. So what you have is, again, just these multi-layer discrimination and injustices that is implicit within Israeli law, but it doesn't stop there. So you then have settler groups, like in the case of the Sublevin family, that exploit this law with the assistance of the state by acquiring property rights. Now, it's important to note that these settlers, they have no connection to the previous Jewish occupants or its owners. And many of the Palestinian families that are that stand to be evicted from these homes are refugees that lost homes and were forced out of their lands and properties on the Israeli side of the Green Line in 1948. And now they stand to be displaced for a second or even third time. So you, you just basically just listening to that 
you understand how it exemplifies this really multi-layered injustice and systemic discrimination and ultimately what it is and and, and Rafat really mentioned this is essentially amounts to forcible transfer i mean this is a violation of international law and human rights and this in this you know this coordination between state and settler you know state and settler efforts to take over their homes, to depopulate. It's essentially, it's dispossession and displacement of Palestinians' families, but then they're repopulating it. They're supplanting them with Israeli Jewish settlers. And so that ultimately amounts to forcible transfer, which is a acute violation of international law. Um, so, you know, again, in, in the case of the Subleban family is that you have, it's a perfect example of exploitation of this 1970 law, but in addition to that, as he mentioned, is that the settlers find all kinds of different mechanisms and means to ultimately initiate the evictions, and it was based a lot on this called protected tenancy status, and so they essentially in this claimed that they violated protected tenancy, and so therefore was able to kind of reinitiate, not kind of, but reinitiate eviction proceedings. Thank you. You laid out so much there that I think is really important. The mechanism for displacement and why it's being pursued. And and Rafat, I want to turn to you and ask you to tell us more about the old city and what's happening there. I think, you know, Amy's joined me for a podcast in the past about Silwan. We've spoken about Sheikh Jarrah a lot. Um, but can you tell us more about settler activity in the old city in the Muslim quarter? First, why would settlers want to take over properties in the Muslim quarter at all. I don't, for some that might sound counterintuitive. So explain to us what settlers in the old city are doing. And also, I mean, your family, correct me if I'm wrong, has lived side by side with some of these settlers for a while now. What is that like? What is daily life like? Sure. Um, I'll, I'll start, um, so, uh, Amy did a really great job in like covering the overall context and I just wanted to like add a, add a few things, and specifically like in in Jerusalem, as, as Amy said, it's not an individual case or an individual incident. What's happening with my family? It's it's a practice that's been that's that's been ongoing for decades now. This practice was also also used during 1948, displacing Palestinians, forcibly transferring Palestinians, seizing their properties. Um, this is not a new policy. It's been going on for so long, um, and uh, and as as I said that as, as I, or as Amy mentioned, there are dozens of families under the same risk of forced displacement of eviction, also in favor of Israeli settlers. I mean, in, in our same neighborhood, there there are at least five six other families also facing eviction proceedings in favor of settlers, and always it um, and always the settlers use new excuses and they find new loopholes in the law which allows them to do it like one of our neighbors they're being evicted under the claim that they stopped paying rent whereas the reality is that they continue to pay rent but the person paying the rent is the son of the tenant not the tenant herself so he's paying the rent on behalf of his mother therefore the settlers decided oh we're not receiving the the, the rent for this protected tenancy. That's why we're going for evicting them. So the idea is that the reasons do not really matter. It's more that this is a policy that's systematic. That's widespread. 
it's not only happening in East Jerusalem, it's also happening in Hebron. There's also the policy of house demolitions that you already mentioned, which affects tens of thousands of Palestinian homes. And this is what it essentially is. It's essentially a battle over demographics and over more con control of more land. It's a battle for displacing Palestinians, emptying them from Jerusalem, from certain areas of the West Bank, pushing them into, into certain areas. It's, it's dominating and controlling the occupied territory. It's, it's erasing what's left of a prospect for the Palestinian state. Now, on the daily life in, in, in Jerusalem, um, like why are the settlers doing this? As, as I said, like it's, it's, it's a settler colonial enterprise. It's expanding, it's trying to take over and seize properties, land in Jerusalem, in the West Bank, wherever possible. It's expanding and no one is really stopping it. What it means for my family, like as, as you mentioned, yes, my family is, is living in the same building with Israeli settlers. Um, like the house next to us, the house above us, the house underneath us. And ac actually, like in 2016, the, the court also took, um, took a storage, storage area underneath our house, which also was part of the protected tenancy and gave it to settlers. And now there's another settler family living underneath us. Mostly there's minimal engagement between us and the neighbors. The only engagement is that they all testified in the court that we don't, we're not living in the house which was also one of the things that the court based its eviction order on, the, the testimony of the settler neighbors. Why do they want to live in Jerusalem? I guess, um, like, I, I don't really get it. Like, maybe Jerusalem is more self-evident, let's say, but I don't really get it why, why um, a person would take their family and go, go live in somewhere like Hebron or go live in a settlement in the middle of an Arab neighborhood? Like, why do you want your children growing up in the middle of this environment, of this constant friction, constant... It's, it's, it's not something you would want to be doing. But in, in the end, for why in, in Jerusalem, in the old city, and particularly where my parents and the neighborhood they live in, I see it as, as a, a long-term plan to actually expand the Jewish quarter, I don't know if that's what they aim for, but my family's neighborhood is exactly at the edge of the Jewish quarter. And already there's a map that Eir Amin published which shows properties already taken over in the area. And it is just an expansionist kind of approach. They want to expand, they want to control as much space, as much buildings and houses as possible in Jerusalem. There was a second part of the question, right, Kristen? Or did I answer? <laughs> you know what you've you've provided so much that I've forgotten okay. my question. You've answered better questions that I could have asked than I could have okay. asked. So okay. Okay. <laughs> I did want to say that I'll put um, for our listeners. I'll put uh, the map and more resources on this case. They'll all be posted on the FMEP website, um, and in the show notes, I'll have a link to that page. So make sure to check all of that out. To kind of, I think it's really important to be able to visualize the map of where this house is, but also see the faces of your mother and your father and, and your family and to know the names and faces of these people facing displacement for doing nothing, <laughs> you know, like, I, uh, okay. So I need to turn to Amy now. Um, I, I do want to ask you, Rafa, 
spoke so beautifully about this is happening in Hebron. This is happening across the West Bank. But can you can you give us even more detail about what's happening across Jerusalem right now in these different neighborhoods? Um, I just want our want our listeners to know the scale of displacement that um, is being threatened, that's already happened, and that is like on an immediate horizon right now. So can you just speak about some more of these cases that I know Aramim's working on? Yeah, sure. So, you know, you mentioned in the beginning, and I think it was it was really good framing that we basically have counted there's a, over 150 Palestinian families in East Jerusalem right now, which total over 1000 Palestinians that are facing eviction. And essentially their cases are all at various different stages within the legal process. And um, but particularly if we're talking about March right now and why why we have focused so much on this month is because of the fact that they there, there is essentially a convergence of, of multiple uh, cases uh, of eviction, forced displacement, facing a total of six Palestinian families, spanning from Sheikh Jarrah in the north, so two sections in Sheikh Jarrah, to the Muslim quarter, as well as down south. And I, I mean, when we're talking about East Jerusalem, it's hard because I don't have a map, but we're talking about a seven square kilometers. So essentially the old city basin or the old city and surrounding Palestinian Palestinian neighborhoods, which is really considered the heart of the conflict, okay, because of the concentration of historical and religious sites within this area. So you essentially across the entire old city basin area, you have six Palestinian families, numbering over 85 individuals. This includes the Sublaban family, who are concurrently either facing imminent eviction this month in March or decisive hearings on their eviction cases. And, and you know, again, to emphasize is that all of these cases, as Rafat was, was mentioning and underscoring, is that this is this is systematic policy. Okay, this is not just an isolated or individual case. They are all very, very similar, and they're all based on the same discriminatory 1970 law. And in addition to that, they are all being initiated by settlers with the backing of the state. So there is obviously a similarity. It's widespread. It's systemic. And it's something to understand the scale of it and the magnitude, because we're talking about essentially measures and mechanisms of mass Palestinian displacement that is being carried out under this kind of guise of legality, because oftentimes when asked, the Israeli government is sometimes asked by, say, international interlocutors, and they say they relegate it to, oh, it's simply a standard real estate dispute between private entities, okay? And we obviously know, as we've described this entire, um, you know, discussion so far, is that it's it's a far cry from a real estate dispute between private individuals. I mean, you have state entities and bodies that are working hand in glove with settler organizations to take over these homes and displace Palestinians. So to just give you a few examples of uh, the families that are under threat of eviction over this month, you have the Salam family, which is from Um Harun Sheikh Jarrah. It's the Western section of, of Sheikh Jarrah. You're talking about three generations of 11 individuals, including four children. And they've lived in their home since 1950. Uh, what would you know? Who has initiated these eviction proceedings? Two key settler activists and Jerusalem City Council members, Yonatan Yosef, who claims ownership 
of the home, along with Deputy Mayor Aliya King, who is known as a very extreme right-wing settler activist. They are behind the initiation of these proceedings. And essentially, this family faces a decisive hearing this month. It's also, though, important to note that they are among 40 families within this particular area in Sheftaraf that are facing eviction. So they're not the only ones in this area, but they are the ones, particularly in March, that could face a decisive hearing Okay, on their case. You also have in, in Batan al-Hawasirwan, so now I'm going to the southern part of just outside the old city is the Shahade family. And we're talking about five households with 35 people that stand to be displaced. The district court ordered their eviction as of March 1st. However, there is currently a pending request to appeal to the Supreme Court. The court is expected to hand down its decision literally at any time. Um, and, you know, I think what's important to really emphasize here is that if the court denies the request, meaning similar to the case of the Sublubin family, the family would be at risk of imminent eviction. OK, so it really hinges on this decision of whether or not they have the right to appeal to the Supreme Court. Um, important to mention that here in Batan al-Hawa, and you've, I'm sure you all have covered this before, it's a very well-known case here where you have approximately 85 Palestinian families that are numbering over 700 individuals who face mass displacement from here by Atirat Kuanim. It's another settler organization that also has relationship with the settler group behind the Soblaban family's eviction case. And here within in Batan al-Hawa, this is also something that is very familiar and it's a trend within these eviction proceedings is that essentially the settler group has co-opted a very old Jewish trust called the Benvenisti Trust in Button that at one time allegedly owned property there in the area from over a century ago. And now it's controlled, okay, by the members of the Tirat Kohanim. And their goal is to expand Jewish settlement, okay, in this area. So you're talking about a major, major expansion of a settler uh, settlement here, a settler enclave in the midst of a Palestinian, midst of a Palestinian uh, neighborhood. And so the Shahade family is facing eviction, could face eviction this month if the court were to deny their request. And then last but not least are three additional families from the eastern side of Sheikh Jarrah in the, it's called uh, Kerem al-Jaoni. And they face a very decisive Supreme Court hearing on March 29th. And I think, you know, it would be, um, I think important to mention here that these families were among the seven families whose eviction cases reached the Supreme Court back in 2021, which captured the world's attention. Um, their eviction threats also triggered, you know, unrest throughout the region and then also another war with Hamas. Uh, I think one of the things, though, here that's interesting is that in the case of the four families, so it was the four families of the seven, okay, that went before the Supreme Court back in 2021, that the Supreme Court issued their verdict and accepted a portion of the family's appeal, which temporarily froze their eviction and then afforded them with kind of the opportunity to prove property rights. And so there's this expectation that in these now, these additional three families, the uh, Dejani, Daoud, and, and Hamad, Hamad families, that there would be a similar decision because it's a very, very similar case from the same the same um, section of Sheikh Jarrah. 
However, because of the actual political climate and reality in which we are living in today right now is that the outcome is still uncertain. And so it's really important and very critical for us to emphasize that there had there is this kind of co, you know um, convergence of eviction cases that are all coming to a head in in March. And I think with this, and I'm just going to close this question out, is that with these examples, and I said this before, is that it underscores this interconnectivity between them all, this systemic policy, but also the political nature of of these measures, and and. I think that it would only be, you know, appropriate to say, even though the Supreme Court didn't necessarily uh, issue a verdict that was a comprehensive, exhaustive, uh, just remedy for the four families within the eastern section of Sheikh Jarrah, it did, though, provide them some sort of legal recourse and protection. And so that a lot of what determined that was because of the public pressure and because of international invention intervention and global attention around this issue and so that's one of the reasons why we have been trying to emphasize so much of elevating the attention and elevating the public pressure around around these issues because at the end of the day we do see that it ultimately does contribute to some sort of moving of the Israeli government and ultimately we believe that it affected the outcome of the Supreme Court case for these other families. And so that's one of the things that we're trying to emphasize is public attention, public pressure, and international intervention. Thank you, Amy. I think we're, we we will trust you. I mean, we'll keep us updated on all of those cases and, and the family and to help keep putting this in front of the international community. I know you guys work a lot with, with diplomats and, and embassies there. So Thank you for doing that work. Um, Rafa, I, I want to come to you with a question about the political climate because we now have an Israeli government that is led and chaired by people who celebrate the displacement and dispossession of Palestinians and actually named that as one of their goals to perpetuate that. Specifically, Itamar Ben-Gavir, who um, is a criminal, <laughs> Kahanist lawmaker, who actually now is the head of Israeli police. Um, so can you talk to us about this new climate? What I, I know he, Ben Gavir just recently made headlines saying that under his watch, Israel will not pause any of its enforcement measures during Ramadan, which Ramadan starts on March 21st, um, mm-hmm. which is less than a week after this, this eviction deadline that your family's facing. So talk to us about that. What does it mean that Ben Gavir's in charge of police who might show up at your parents' door any day um, during Ramadan to to remove them from their home. Sure. Um, I'll, I'll start by saying that the new Israeli government does not really bring anything new to the table. I think the only thing that's new about this government is just how open the racist its members are. Like they're no longer ashamed. They're no longer trying to like hide the discrimination in their policies, in their actions, in their words. They're no longer trying to hide it. They're just honest about it. That's the only thing new that they bring, at least for me, because all of those policies we've been talking about, whether it's forcible transfer of Palestinians, demolishing houses, and all the violence practiced by Israel since 1948, is the same policies that this current government is utilizing. Yes, they will be accelerating 
displacement, there will be accelerating demolitions. We've already seen the violence the past few months taking place in the OPT. So yeah, they will accelerate and they will go full speed ahead with all of their violent and discriminatory policies. On Ben Gvir himself, yes, the, the, since now he is the actual head of, let's say, the police or the police uh, operate under Ben Gvir. So when the eviction moves forward, yes, it will be police uh, acting under him, basically, or under his orders. And one of the things that will happen after the 15th of March is the settlers will uh, will go to the law enforcement authority so like to like to enforce the court order but they will also be getting approval from the police so the police will like estimate the security situation and say whether they give the give the green light to proceed with the displacement or not and because it is now Bengvir, like we already know what's the outcome gonna be like we already know they're gonna be giving this green light ahead and we're already seeing the, the dangerous rhetoric being pushed forward by Ben Gvir and by other officials in this new Israeli government, whether it's celebrating demolition of Palestinian houses, pushing forward these policies. I mean, some of these people who are sitting in the government called for mass uh, displacement of Palestinians and also of, of like burning a whole village. We're talking about like next level um, ethnic cleansing they're actually calling for. So it's not looking really bright, let's say, like at least the, the coming period isn't really looking good for Palestinians in particular. And in the, in the past three, four months, the Israeli government, the new Israeli government has been building up this discourse that there is going to be a very serious escalation happening around Ramadan. Whereas in the past four months, every single policy and measure on the ground has been driving the situation towards there. And I think this is actually the plan. The plan is for this new Israeli government to prove its strength by another armed conflict, by bringing by another armed conflict on Gaza, another escalation in the West Bank. And they're actually boasting about displacing and demolishing Palestinian houses. I mean, this is, this is what the new Israeli government brings. It just brings honesty about those policies that Israel has committed for over, or has been committing for over seven decades. Thank you for making that point. I think it's an important one and one that I know has been a recurring theme in at least FMAP's programming that this isn't new. It's it's yes. yet the next iteration, um, especially when you look at your family's case that's been 40 years of courts providing no justice and 40 years of courts and state providing more rope to the settlers, more reason for the settlers and hope for the settlers to take to take over this property. So thank you. This is not new. Um, okay. We don't have a lot of time left. I have one more question for both of you. Um, Amy, I have to ask, I, not that I think the Aqaba communique, which was recently signed and agreed to by Israel, the Palestinian Authority with the US, Egypt, and Jordan involved as well. Not that I think that that is worth taking seriously given Israel's actions <laughs> um, recently, but I have to ask. So part of that commitment and agreement was that Israel will de-escalate, not take any unilateral actions. So tell me, do you think there's any hope that that the Israeli, whoever is the adult in the room, I guess, Netanyahu, I'm not sure, <laughs> will intervene <laughs> to say, let's not do this at such a sensitive time, not just with the coming of Ramadan, but with what's happening in the West Bank, 
um, and the pressure they're facing from international governments already to, to fulfill these commitments? What do you think? <laughs> uh, you ask a good question. Um, you know, I mean, I, I would uh, kind of agree with your sentiments. You know, we've seen a series of empty commitments, you know, on the part of the Israeli government, including in Aqaba. And then just prior to that, the Israeli government you know, supposedly, allegedly agreed to freeze all demolitions <clears throat> and evictions and settlement advancements in exchange for the Palestinian Authority suspending its efforts to push for a UN Security Council vote against settlements. And yet, directly after that, demolitions and settlement advancements continued to be carried out at full force in, in East Jerusalem, which we were monitoring that. And so with that in mind, it certainly doesn't bode well for these eviction threats. I think what I would say instead is that it all, in my opinion, it all comes down to the amount of global attention, elevating the voices of the families, the stories, amplifying the stories of the families and showing that again, it's not an isolated or individual case here and there, but we're talking about measures of mass Palestinian displacement that could happen at the same time. And so, and I think, and this is why I mentioned before is that it was so, it was such a remarkable really Palestinian grassroots mobilization back in 2021 that ended up capturing the world's attention regarding these, these mechanisms of displacement within East Jerusalem and what was happening in Sheikh Jarrah that ultimately ended up causing the Supreme Court to kind of change, it, at least it appeared that way, to change course. And it obviously elicited a lot of international engagement and international intervention. And so I think that based on what has worked in the past is that that's what our focus really needs to be on is creating a noise around around these measures and around these actions and, and not just not just practices, but really policies calling on the Israeli government, calling on our, you know, local representatives. So if you're in the United States or in Europe and ensuring that they engage with the Israeli government for really for there to be a radical change of policy, ultimately a sustainable change of policy, but that in the interim, that there would be a complete cessation and halting of, of these measures of displacement and, and these evictions. And I think that it's only, in my opinion, it's it's not going to be just the goodwill of the Israeli government. It has to be because of actual public pressure and engagement with the Israeli government that comes from opposition from the outside, external, but also local, because there's a lot of activists that are on the ground that are standing in solidarity with the Palestinian families, but there needs to be more noise and there needs to be more attention in order to, in, in, in order to really garner what, what is needed to to halt um to halt the evictions and so that's that's basically what i would say i think that last last thing that i would say here is that there has to be israel must be held accountable like it's israel yeah. must be accountable to international law and as i said before there has to be a change in policy with regard to forced evictions of palestinian but overall with regard to palestinian rights to housing and shelter i mean it's just basic human rights and that is what israel needs to be called upon and and what they essentially need to be demanded of so thank you i hope that answers your question absolutely thank you so much thank you for for all of that and thank you for the work that 
you and the Iramine staff do to hold Israel accountable. So thank you. Um, Rafat, I'm giving you the last word. Um, take this as an opportunity to say anything you want. Um, specifically, what message do you want our audience to to linger on here? What what is your call to action for them, <laughs> for for those listening? Yeah, thanks. Um, so for for this part, I I actually before the interview or before the meeting, I I called my mom and I asked her, "What's what's your message?" Like uh, I'm I'm gonna have this interview, and her main message was, um, "I'm not gonna give up." And we're not gonna give up. We're gonna keep fighting. Um, she, my mom also also says, and and I agree on this also with what Amy has been saying that uh, international solidarity and activism does make a difference, and it actually did make a difference in our own case in 2015. Like we already had our own campaign in 2015, and it it also put pressure on the court. Uh, through diplomatic intervention. I think back then the Americans, the British, the EU also intervened. And if they didn't intervene, I think my family would have been evicted back in 2015 already. It wouldn't have, have waited until today. So this activism, this solidarity, pushing your own government parliamentarians to act, to hold Israel accountable and to stop these, these policies, these oppressive policies and violations of human rights is a must. And um, my mom said that if, if, in, if in the end we're not able to stop this forced displacement and the settlers will seize the house, she said that for her, the house will be a prisoner until such a time when it will be free again. Mm -hmm. And this is what we will be waiting for. Thank you. And please send our best to your mom and, and dad. And I wish we could be there. I wish I could be there. Thank um, you. Shukran. Well, thank you so much, Amy and Rafat, for your time today and the generosity of, of sharing your story with us, um, with me. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of Occupied Thoughts please visit our website, fmep.org. I'm going to post all of the resources, maps, further reading, ways to keep up to date um, on our websites for, for your use. Um, and make sure you're subscribed to this podcast if you're not already so that you get our future episodes. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Um, and you can also watch a video version of us if you want to see our faces on, on YouTube. So thank you so much. This is Kristen McCarthy. I'm signing off until the next time. Have a great day. Mm -hmm.